0: So we've been talking about how a fear of failure can leave us frozen on the sidelines and failing to get out and live boldly and courageously the way that God desires us to live. And as Christians and people of faith, we shouldn't have to live that way. We should live as people with, with courage, not with the spirit of timidity and of fear. Uh, because really, when you think about it, the worst that can happen if you get out and take a risk for the kingdom of God is that you either succeed uh, or... Uh, God provides some growth that you didn't even know you needed as a result of your failure, or you can fail and God picks you back up after your failure, and and you end with thanksgiving and gratitude and a renewed confidence in God. So we don't have to be afraid of taking risks for the kingdom of God. We don't have to be afraid. And and this can bleed over into all kinds of different areas of our life. And last week, we really looked at, at times when you fail the first thing that you have to do in order for there to be an opportunity for you to experience growth or gratitude, the positive benefits of failure, you have to first begin by taking responsibility and ownership of your mistakes. If you try and pass off your failures on other people, you're giving away the potential benefits of the difficulties you're going through. But if you say, I've failed here. There's something I can learn. I failed here. Let's see if God picks me up and restores me to sound footing. Then you have an opportunity to experience incredible growth or incredible gratitude. We compared how Saul and David uh, responded so differently to their own failures and how it resulted in very different outcomes for their kingdoms. And there's opportunities for us to live into those lessons today. And today as we're continuing this series, and we've got this lesson and one more after this one, uh, but as we're continuing this series today, what we're going to look at is how the actual process works. Uh, I've been making a claim that if you face your fear of failure head on, if you do so faithfully with God, that there's going to be this end result of you growing. And I want to look at a couple of stories, two in fact from the Old Testament, a story from Moses' life and a story from Gideon's life that really show us how much, when we're willing to take risks for God's kingdom, that the result is that God begins to produce something entirely different than our initial fear. Uh, That He replaces that fear with something else entirely. He replaces it with faith. But how does that work? How do we get from being afraid to having incredible courage? How do we get from being on the sidelines to being the ones that are in the arena having the great adventures? How do we make that move? So the first story we're going to look at is a story from the life of Moses. It is the pivotal story in Moses' life. It's the occasion where he is uh, out tending to to his his sheep and he sees up on that mountain uh, a bush that is burning but not burning up. It is just constantly on fire. And he says, I've got to see what's going on there. And he climbs up to this bush and the angel of the Lord begins to speak to him out of the bush. And we know the story well that Moses uh, hears the voice and the voice says, take off your sandals for the ground that you were standing on is holy. So Moses takes off his sandals and this conversation begins And in this conversation, uh, he says, I'm God, the God of your fathers. And I want you to go to Egypt and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go because I've heard them crying out to me and I want to set them free. And Moses's first response is, is God, but who are you to send me? Or I suppose he said, oh, burning bush, who are you to send me? God says, I am, says, I am. I am is sending you to Pharaoh to tell him to let my people go. And that's where we're going to pick up in in this conversation where Moses begins with the rest of his excuses because Moses is only confident in one thing in this story. And what Moses is confident in is his own inability to do this. He is certain that he will fail if he goes and does what this burning bush that has identified itself as God is calling him to do. He knows he will not succeed, and he doesn't want to do that. So now Moses answered, this is in Exodus chapter 4, Moses answered, what if they, talking about the Israelites, don't believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? So he says, who am I for you to send me? Because if I show up and they say, listen, who are you to tell us this? I'm kind of in agreement with them. Who am I that I would be the one that goes to Pharaoh and says, let God's people go? And he says, besides, what if I go there in Israel, the people that I'm supposed to be leading and helping and serving and saving, what if they look at me and they say, we don't know who you are and we think you're lying. We don't trust you. We don't know you. Why would we listen to you? The Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? A staff, he replied. Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it, which is, by the way, always the appropriate response to a snake on the ground. <laughs> Terrified of snakes. And I mean, good company, because Moses sees the snake hit the ground, and he runs. The Lord said to him, while he's running from it, reach out your hand and take it by the tail, which is the part that I would have said, no thanks, I'll just go talk to Pharaoh. But that's not how the story goes. Moses reached out, took hold of the snake. And by the way, if you ever go to take hold of a snake, grabbing it by the tail is not the right way to do it. Which is actually a little bit of a faithful moment for Moses. But he grabs the snake by the tail and turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. And Moses puts his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, the skin was covered in leprosy. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back in your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak. And when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe in the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Please send someone else. God tells him, at this point, that he's angry, and he says, no, you're going to go. I will send Aaron with you, and Aaron will help you do your your talking, but it's time for you to quit making excuses and get to work. I've got a mission for you, and I'm sick of your excuses. You need to go. And the way this whole conversation takes place really tells us something about how Moses doesn't want to go fail in Egypt. He's convinced that he is unqualified, that he is not skilled enough, that he is not the person to go. And he's trying to convince God of this. And it's not going very well. He says, Listen, God, I, I'm not the right person. God says, I think you are. He says, I'm not very good at talking. God said, I made your tongue and I know what it's capable of. Now go. But just no pardon me, Lord, but can you send someone else? He really doesn't want to go. And now God has finally gotten fed up with his excuses, and he's angry, and he says, I'm going to send you, Aaron will go with you, but it's time to get to business. Now, one of the things that's really interesting to me is verse 10 here, where Moses says to the Lord, I've never been to, oh, not verse 10, where was it? Verse 8, the wrong thing in my notes. In verse 8, the Lord says, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. Then they will believe you is the idea, right? What do we call the event where Moses poured out the water of the Nile and it turned to blood? We know that as the first, first plague. What, the last plague? The first plague. Can you imagine if God in this moment when he was talking to Moses said, and then if that doesn't work, uh, then we're going to do frogs and gnats and boils. And if that doesn't work, we're going to do darkness and livestock and hail and, and locusts. And, and if that doesn't work, I'm going to kill every firstborn and every family in Egypt. And that's going to work. What, what God is not telling Moses is, Moses, I am sending you to Egypt for a season of incredible failure. You're going to go and you're going to tell Pharaoh, Pharaoh, I want you to let my people go. And Pharaoh is going to say, no. And the people aren't going to like you, the Israelites nor the Egyptians. Pharaoh's going to think you're the worst. And this is going to go on over and over and over and over again. You're going to fail so many times. But he doesn't. He just tells them, listen, I'm gonna give them signs until they believe, maybe even three, which are actually leading up to the first. And so when Moses gets down to Egypt, Moses gets down there, uh, he goes to Pharaoh, says, hey, I want you to let my people go so we can go worship in the wilderness. Pharaoh says, no, I'm so mad that you asked me to do this uh, that I'm now going to make the Israelites not only make bricks from straw, But they have to go gather the straw themselves, transport it to where they're making it, and they have to make the bricks too. And if they ask who they have to thank for all of this extra work for the same amount of expected output, please tell them to send their thank you cards to Moses and Aaron. Here's their address. So the Israelites get the news that they're not just in charge of manufacturing anymore. They're in charge of materials, procurement, supply chain. They're in charge of shipping and manufacturing. Because they're slaves, there's no pay. And because they're slaves, they don't have a choice. And and they go to their overseers and they say to them, why are we all of a sudden having to do so much work and expected to do the same amount of output? What happened? And they said, oh, here's the address of Moses and Aaron. You may not have heard of them, but they're advocating on your behalf. You can thank them accordingly. So in verse 19 of chapter 5, this conversation happens. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told this, that you're not able to reduce the number of bricks required for you each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. Now, this is the people that Moses was just saying, I don't want to go save them. And God says, you need to go save them. And he gets there to save them, and he gives his first attempt. And they show up, and he says, hey, it's nice to meet you guys. I'm the deliverer. I'm here to save you. And they say, yeah, may God look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So Moses returns to the Lord and says, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Things aren't going the way they were supposed to. So God reassures Moses, and he says, listen, this is verse 6, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, And I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Moses goes to them and says, Listen, God has sent me. This is the God that's made all these promises to you and the God who's going to deliver you and the God that's going to make you his people and the God who's going to make you his nation, the God who's going to give you this land. And they went, whatever, and went back to making bricks. Then The Lord said to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses says to the Lord, If the Israelites don't listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? He says, God, this is just an entire exercise in me failing. I've already failed with Pharaoh and made things worse. I failed with the people. They don't listen to me or you. God, I don't want to go back to Pharaoh. He's not going to listen. I'm going to have to fail over and over and over again. And I don't want to do that. And that's exactly what had to happen. What we call the story of the ten plagues could be called the story of the nine failures. Nine times over weeks and weeks, Moses has to go back to Pharaoh and say, let the people go. And he says, no. And he says, then I'm going to have to bring some disaster on your people Pharaoh says, I'm not letting your people go. And the disaster comes, and Pharaoh calls Moses back in. He says, fine, I'll let your people go. Just make the disaster, the plague, go away. And Moses says, well, fine, you pick the time. Tomorrow, 3 p.m. or whatever Pharaoh picked. And Moses does it exactly then. And Pharaoh says, wow, now that they're gone, your people need to get back to work. And God tells Moses, go back. Do it again. After nine times of this, Wouldn't you get exhausted? Wouldn't you just want to say, God, how how many times do I have to fail at telling Pharaoh to let the people go? How many times do the people have to work harder because my efforts to set them free aren't working? Over and over again, Moses fails until finally his failure is rewarded with faith. Finally, the Israelites are set free. Finally, they cross the Jordan River, the Red Sea, on dry ground. Eventually, they cross the Jordan River on dry ground. And, And the promises that God makes in that passage that they don't even listen to all come true. Because God is leading Moses out of the fear of failure through failure after failure after failure until Moses now has incredible faith. By the time that their backs are against the Red Sea, he tells the people as Pharaoh is coming down against them, he says, listen, don't be afraid. All you have to do today is not run away and God's going to take care of the rest. Because he's grown from fear to faith. And he's not worried anymore. God has brought them through it and through the process a failure, he grew in him an incredibly resilient faith. Now we've got to move to Gideon. Gideon is one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament because the, the battle that comes at the end is just amazing. And so we'll, we're going to get to the battle in a minute, but we have to start with Gideon's doubt. So in Judges chapter 6, we get the story of Gideon. And if you're familiar with Judges Uh, as as we talked about earlier, that Israel over and over again, a new generation came up who believed not in the God of their fathers, but worshiped the idols, as Remington talked about, that they would get unfaithful and that God would then send someone else to conquer them. In the beginning of Judges 6, it describes how bad things have gotten under the Midianites who have been just destroying them and ravaging their crops and taking everything uh, for seven years. And it's gotten so bad. And the people finally cry out to God and say, God, help us again. And God sends them a judge. And we're going to skip down to verse 11 where it says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Orpherah that belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Usually you thresh wheat on the threshing floor and crush wine in the wine press, but you do this out of season in the place where you shouldn't do it because you know if you do it in a public place, your crops will be stolen or destroyed. He's doing this in the threshing wheat in the wine press. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior." I love this part of the story because almost every time an angel shows up to someone in Scripture, the first thing they do is they fall on their faces and they say, Please don't kill me. You're terrifying. They're scared. Uh, He says to Gideon, God is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon just replies. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us out of, up out of Egypt? Now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. And Gideon replied, if if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. He asked for a sign. Doesn't this conversation sound familiar? Pardon me, Lord, but I've got an excuse. Pardon me, Lord, but I don't think I'm the person that you want. I don't know why all of these guys have so many good manners, why they're telling God they don't want to go where he's sending him, but their manners are impeccable. Uh, Pardon me, Lord, uh, but I don't want to go. Uh, Gideon begins with his excuses, and he gets to this point, and he asks for a sign. He says, listen, if you're really God, and if you're really sending me, and if you're going to deliver me, and if you're saying it's not my strength but yours, because that's what Gideon's worried about. If this plan relies on my strength, you're in trouble, God. God says, it doesn't rely on your strength. It relies on mine. I will go with you. Gideon's saying, well, if I'm going to rely on you and not on me, I need to know that you're going to back it up. So can you just give me a sign? And he goes and he prepares this offering and he sets it on the rock where the offering is made and the angel that's there takes his staff and touches the stone and the stone erupts in flame and consumes the offering and you get the idea that that God has eaten this offering and Gideon says, okay, you're God, I'm good. But pardon me, Lord, can I get one more little sign? Because I believe that you're God now, but I don't know if you're, I'm the right guy for you to send. Can, pardon me, can I just have one more sign? What's the sign you need, Gideon? Can I just put the wool outside at night, and it's this, this heavy wool fleece, and if I come back in the morning and the wool is wet and the ground is dry, then I'll know that you want to send me to go do this. The next morning, Gideon gets up, goes out, and the wool is soaked. It's just soaked, and the ground around it is dry. He says, okay. Pardon me, Lord. Can I just have one more sign? Just to be sure, maybe the dew was just very locally unique to my wool last night. I, I, I did the, t- the sign backwards. Tonight, can you leave the wool dry and the ground soaked? The next morning he goes out and the wool is dry and the ground is soaked and Gideon realizes he's got to get a battle plan. And he's got to raise an army. And he immediately gets to work because as he is struggling to have faith in himself, he can no longer doubt the God that continues to give him confidence through these affirming signs. And so Gideon begins gathering an army. And so in verse 7, he moves to his battle plan. And in verse 2, he says, uh, chapter 7, verse 2, The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men, which is not normally a problem when you're going to war in the ancient world. Usually, more men, good battle plan equals incredible success. Gideon has raised an army to go and invade Midian, and God looks at the army and says, No, there's too many people. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now, announced to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. Can you imagine what Gideon felt like going out to the army and saying, Listen, God is, is worried there's too many of us. He would like to send a smaller army so that we know that it's Him that delivered us into this great victory, not our own military strength. So if you would like to not go to battle, please go home. 22,000 men went home and 10,000 stayed. And Gideon's got to be running through battle tactics in his hand, this man who's known as the mighty warrior. And he's running through the tactics and he's coming up with a plan, going, well, I had a pretty good 32,000-man plan. We're going to be really outnumbered, but I could have come up with something. 10,000, what am I going to do with 10,000? But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water and there the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. So now we have two groups, one of 300 and one of 9,700. And Gideon's going, okay, they're getting separated, give me the 9,700, give me the 9,700, give me the 9,700. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands, let the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of all the Israelites home, but kept the 300, who took over the provisions and trumpets of The others. Now it's Gideon plus 300 men and they're going to battle against this huge Midianite army and and Gideon's got to be getting pretty nervous and so God tells him listen sneak into the camp I'll give you a sign that'll make you secure I know you like signs at this point. So Gideon sneaks into the camp and here's another man in the Midianite camp say to his friend hey I had a dream last night that that our army got destroyed I think this this Hebrew army is going to destroy us And Gideon went, yes, if they're scared of us, they're in trouble. And he goes back, and he develops the battle plan. In verse 16, here's how the battle happens. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon! Gideon and the three hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the three hundred trumpets sounded the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Bethsha towards Zarah, Zarara as far as the border of uh, other cities. Okay. Now, and then he calls on others to go chase them down and defeat them. What in the world just happened in this battle? How did they get this great victory? Here's what appears to have happened. In the ancient world, you would very rarely go to battle at night because you don't have night vision goggles. And you can't just turn on your headlights. And so if you go to battle at night, there's two things you have to be able to do in darkness. One is communicate, and the other is see. And so if you're going into battle, each company of men that is going into the battle has one guy who's in charge of blowing the trumpet to communicate what's going on to the other groups. The other person is in charge of holding a torch up high so everyone else can see while the battle's going on. And then there's about 100 other men that follow those two guys. And as long as you're with those two guys, you know where you're going. Gideon gets a battle plan and he says, listen, I need you to go put all your weapons back at camp. We're not going to use them. What are we going to use? I'm giving you this jar with a torch inside and a trumpet. Yeah, but what about when the fighting starts? Keep blowing your trumpet. But what about when they come at me and attack me? Hold your torch up high. Gideon, this sounds like insanity. So what happens is in the middle of the night, they switch guards. So the guards that have been up for a long time go to bed and and they're so exhausted until they go to sleep. And the new guards get up and they're groggy from just waking up. And at that moment, from all around the camp, pottery shatters. And, And this is a world that doesn't have dynamite yet. And so when pottery shatters all around you, you don't know what's going on, but it sounds like an explosion you've never heard before. And you jump out of your tent, and you look around, and you think, oh, no. If you see 300 torches, and you hear 300 trumpets, that means there's 300,000 men in an army that somehow just showed up and made this thunder boom that you don't understand, and you're terrified. And all you're thinking is, where's my sword? I've got to fight all the people that are coming. But you can't find anyone to fight. So you just think if there's 300,000 men and they're surrounding us and they're attacking us, I'll just fight anyone with a sword. Well, guess what? Israelites are the only ones in the field that don't have swords. They're the only people you don't have to worry about killing you. And so they're just standing on the outside of this camp, blowing trumpets, yelling battle battle cries, holding their torches up high, and watching the Midianites slaughter each other because God has brought confusion into their camp. It doesn't happen with the strength of 32,000 happens with God bringing his plan and his order into being and doing it in such a way that Gideon could then say God has brought us salvation and deliverance. God has given us uh, the ability to do something that seemed impossible has now become possible. God has brought us through this Suddenly Gideon goes from being so afraid of failing and so aware of his excuses and his inabilities to being so completely certain that God will take care of them in this in any circumstance. How did he get there? How did Moses get there? How do we go from where we are sitting on the sidelines to being people who are filled with confidence in God? How do we go from having full confidence in our inability to get this done to full confidence in God's ability? Here's how God does it. We see this in both stories. It starts with, I don't think I can do this, to God thinks I can do this, to, you know what? God and I both think I can do this and then it moves to God and I think that God and I can do this to finally those who move to great faith arrive at I think God can do this that's the move that Moses and Gideon discover in their walk through failure to faith and another way of saying it is we start with doubt in myself And then we move to borrowed confidence in myself, to shared confidence in myself, to then shared confidence in us, me and God, to then my confidence in God. Many of us stay in doubt our whole lives. Some of us move into shared confidence in ourselves because we believe if God believes in me, maybe I should believe in me too. There are a few among us who move to having shared confidence and reliance in what we can do with God. If God is with me, then who can stand against me? But it is only the great heroes of faith in Scripture and in our lives who are able to fully move from a lack of confidence in ourselves to full reliance and confidence and trust in God. Because once you get there, there's no fear of failure left. There's no fear of, of, of being unable to do anything because you realize it's not rooted in your ability. It's rooted in God's ability, and He's capable, and He is enough for you to do all things so that Paul can write with confidence. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You can do all things. Not me, but Christ in me. Not me, but God through me. So the questions today is what are you afraid of that you're still stuck in doubt on because of your inabilities, because of your skill set, because of who you think you are? What are the things going on? Is there a conversation you need to have? A place God's calling you to go? A transition in life that you need to to go through and you're worried about the place in the middle and the destination. What is it that God has placed in front of you right now that all you have is doubt in yourself and God's saying, listen, why don't you fail your way through this? And I promise if you do it long enough, you're gonna come out with confidence, not in yourself. You'll get there on the way, but if you go all the way through, you'll come out with confidence in God because we're refined by failure. We're refined by going through the tough stuff and having God pull us through. What is it that God wants you to step into the arena and off the sidelines to accomplish for his good purposes and for his glory and not your own if you're here this morning and you're listening to this and you're thinking, the thing that I most need to do is to step out in faith and accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, you do it through faith and baptism in a life of, uh, of being obedient to King Jesus and pledging allegiance to him. If today's the day that you need to start that part of your walk, come forward this morning while we stand and sing.